Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. This is quite providential for me this Lord, uh, this week, as this whole week I've been studying about the Sabbath and how Christ is our Sabbath. This past week has been extra challenging for me on a personal level. I mean, there's always the rigors of family life, different rigors as a pastor. But this past week I got a text from my friend and said, you got to go see so-and-so. He, he, he got put into hospice care. And so from big chunks of Thursday, big chunks of Friday, where I was able to spend some time with him. But the hospice care went a lot faster than, than expected. He died Friday afternoon. And so a lot of things were running through my own mind as I had the privilege of being there. My friend who died and I, we met through our Seventh-day Adventist days. I was reminded about our times together at school and also at the day camp that we were part of, that he, he was older than me, but he took care of us. And I remember as a Seventh-day Adventist, growing up, the Sabbath was a huge deal. I mean, that was the emphasis. That was perhaps the distinguishing mark of being a Seventh-day Adventist, to remember the Sabbath day, the Seventh day, to keep it holy. Such a big emphasis that on Friday and Saturday they would post the sunset times because Sabbath starts when the sun goes down on a Friday and the Sabbath ends when the sun goes down on a Saturday. So if this was past, this past week, it would have been 7-17. Friday is when your life ended as a youngster. You cannot do anything. There's nothing secular. There's no television watching. There's no secular music. There's no homework. None of that. This is just a day to rest kind of, and to focus in on God. And you got your life back as a youngster at 7.15 on Saturdays, two minutes earlier the sunset. So those are the things that we would look forward to. These are the things that we will remember. So Seventh-day Adventists are modern-day Sabbatarians. Modern-day Sabbatarians. Sabbatarians are those who observe the Seventh-day Saturday and set it apart and push pause on all secular life. Now, people like that exist today. And the Sabbath observance was very, quite distinctive. That was perhaps the, the most distinguishing mark for a Jew 2,000 years ago. The seventh day was set apart from the other six days. You could work. You need to work those six days. On the seventh day, you need to cease from doing these other things. And this is where the Pharisees, we're going to learn more about the Pharisees today, would manipulate the heart of the Sabbath. Right, youth? We, kind of, we went over this a little bit. How did the Sabbath morph? Right? We talked about that. You're going to learn more about this. So they turned what meant, was meant to be a blessing into a legalistic burden. Oh, it was meant to lighten the load actually made the load ten times much more heavier on that day. They morphed the Sabbath into a cruel tyrant. Bunch of rules, a bunch of rules that you need to go to college and, and to be an expert to understand every single detail, the facet of maintaining the rules. This is about rule keeping at its highest order. And this is they enslaved the people under the yoke of endless, ridiculous rules. And perhaps this is how you see religion today. Christianity perhaps is about uh, keeping a bunch of rules. Perhaps this is how you see it. 
And to explain better, more the heart of the Pharisees, John MacArthur writes in his commentary, he writes, anything that might be contrived as work was forbidden on the seventh day. Carrying anything heavier than a dried fig was forbidden. No insects could be killed. I wonder what happens if the mosquito is biting you. Can you not kill it, right? No candle or flame could be lit or extinguished. That was considered work. Nothing could be bought or sold. No commerce. How about this one? No bathing was allowed since water might spill out onto the floor and accidentally wash it, and that would be considered washing the floor, right? Sick people were only allowed, only allowed enough treatment to keep them alive. Any medical treatment that improved their condition was considered work and therefore prohibited. This one's kind of funny here, but I thought it'd be helpful to uh, explain the, 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 the craziness of this. It was not even permissible for, for women to look into a mirror. How come? Since they might be tempted to pull out any gray hairs they, they spotted. <laughs> Nor were they allowed to wear jewelry since jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. All right. This is the heart of what happened to the Sabbath day. It once, once a blessing, now it became rule after rule after rule, even impractical in a lot of ways. And it led to more conflicts with Jesus. So we're going to be out of Mark chapter 2 today. Hopefully that intro kind of helps set, frame up our reading today. Mark chapter 2, 23 to 3 to 6. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. And a couple things of context before we rise and read our, our Mark passage here. Hope you have your Bibles so you can follow along with me. Jesus was in conflict over for, forgiving a paralytic. This is a big, the war started over Jesus being able to forgive somebody. Then they got on him for eating with sinners and tax collectors. Remember that one? And then they got on him last time for the disciples not fasting. Right, So today, the battle front hits its peak over the Sabbath issue. So if you're able to, please rise with me and read along with me out of Mark chapter 2, verse 23. I'll be reading out of the NASB version. Verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with a withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? to save a life or to kill. But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately began, to consp began conspiring with the Herodians against him. 
as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we will have a clear idea of your son, Jesus Christ, and we will know what it means to have him as our Sabbath. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. The Sabbath displays the Father's heart for his children. God the Father's heart is displayed for his children through the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This explains what the heart of the Sabbath is all about. True, it's the fifth command. As Auntie Etz read out of Exodus 20, it is a fifth commandment that we are to keep. But this commandment wasn't made to control people. This commandment wasn't made to burden people. This command was not to turn people off from religion. This command was made to bless his children. It's for our own good. Our own good. Now keep in mind the fall. In the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. And then sin entered. And there was a curse. There was a consequence because of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. God tells Adam the man, through toil and sweat you will eat. Meaning life is no longer going to be simple. It's going to be hard work. And keep in mind, in Israel, what kind of society was it 2,000 years ago? It was blue-collar, agrarian society. It was farm country. It was six days a week from sunrise to sunset. You're working just to eat. This is quite an, a, a commitment. And so for to be able to Sabbath, which means to cease or to rest, God is offering rest to his people. Right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. How many of us are tempted to work seven days a week? We may not be digging in the fields, but we, how many of us are on the computer nonstop, on Zoom all the time, thinking about the next thing all the time? God is, in, in fact, saying, rest and take a day off. Rest. Trust me. God is saying, trust me. I'll take care of the rest. You don't have to work seven days. You just work six days. I'm going to give you rest. I'll take care of what you need. Enjoy what I've given you. Enjoy creation. Enjoy your family. Enjoy some recreation. Change it up a little bit. Right? This is what is in the heart of the Father. You may be asking, is observing the Sabbath for Christians? I mean, you have to understand my background. This was ingrained into me for many years. You need to keep the Sabbath. So when, I, when Christ saved me in college at the University of Southern California, there was a tension within me. How come I'm not going to church on Saturday? I know what the I know what Auntie Etz read. It's clearly that's been taught. Am I compromising? Why are we not gathering on the seventh day? Why is this the first day? Right? These are things that we need to reconcile to understand. If we're for people of the Bible, how do we reconcile that? Well, Galatians three twenty four to twenty seven says we are no longer under the law. It means the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Sabbath is part of the law, the code, the way that the Jews live in order to please God. Hebrews 4, chapter 4 says, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And we get to rest in the work of Christ. 
And Jesus frees us from living under the tyranny of the law. That's why. Now, as New Covenant believers, we are not bound to keeping the Sabbath anymore. Why? Why? Why do we obey some things in the Old Testament? Why do we not obey some things? Well, let me explain in as simple, simple, in simple terms as possible. As possible. There's ceremonial laws and moral laws in the Old Testament. And the Sabbath was a ceremonial law. What are ceremonial laws? Here are other examples of that. Animal sacrifices. Going to the temple. The temple doesn't even exist anymore. Observing Jewish festivals and holidays. Nothing wrong with that, but that's a, that's a ceremonial thing. Observing dietary laws. These are all ceremonial things that we are no longer bound under. Now, some moral laws, such as having no other gods before us. Not to murder, not to bear false witness, not to covet other people's stuff, not to commit adultery. These things are intact because these are consistent with God's own character. As God's people, we copy God. This is how we do it. Makes sense. In Mark 2.28, Jesus says right here, So that Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is basically saying, I am God who created everything. I am the God who rested after the sixth day of speaking everything into existence, although he didn't need to. God doesn't need to rest, but he is modeling this for us. God, Jesus is saying, I am the author of the Sabbath. I'm the one who invented the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the one who gives you ultimate rest. And so, as we, I felt like that was a helpful kind of a, contextual thing to help us understand these verses. And we're going to answer one question. So youth, we're going to answer one question today. Here's the one question. What does it mean to rest in Jesus as our Sabbath? You got that, youth? What does it mean to rest in Jesus as our Sabbath? And the three elements that we, or the three blessings that we receive when we rest in Jesus as our rest is this. Jesus provides refreshment. Number two, Jesus provides us restoration. And thirdly, Jesus provides us redemption. Refreshment, restoration, and redemption. So let's turn to scene number one. There's three different scenes, and we're going to quickly go through these scenes, but we're going to try to mine out the issues here, okay? The, what, the, the blessings of fall, uh, resting in Jesus as our Sabbath. We find in scene one, refreshment in the grain field. Refreshment in the grain field. The war is heating up now between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's heating up bad now. This is a point of anger and hostility now. Verse 23 says this, And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. This is a scene. This is a farm country. There are big roads where people uh, uh, travel through, but in order to get through town, you got to go through the fields. And as they're walking through the fields, it's no, undoubtedly roughly probably April time. It's kind of warm. This is when the harvest is ripe. And the disciples undoubtedly are hungry. And undoubtedly the disciples would know the Pharisaic rules for them to not pick the grain. Therefore, Jesus would have had to have given them permission. No, 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 go ahead. You could eat. Take what you need and eat. 
And so as they're with Jesus, they get to eat, they get to be refreshed. This is a blessing. This is how Jesus treats his people. When you're going with Jesus, when you're walking with Jesus, Jesus makes sure your needs are taken care of. No, no, no. You're hungry, Peter, James, and John, Andrew. Go ahead and eat. This is how the Lord treats us. The Lord doesn't want to put more burdens upon us. He goes, you need to eat. Go ahead and eat. Because Matthew says that they were hungry. What father, when your children are hungry, aren't going to feed, feed your children, right? You may say, hey, wait till dinner time, but there's something coming. This is the heart of God. And look what the Pharisees do. In verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? This word look is like, see, we caught him. We caught you. You're a Sabbath breaker. We got you now. This is an accusatory look. So is picking grain unlawful? Is this wrong? I mean, this is one of the questions that came up to me as I was studying. Can I literally go into someone's field and start picking and eating, right? It's like going to someone's front yard and picking the orange as you're going on a walk or in your neighborhood. Is that okay? Is that okay? Well, maybe not in the San Gabriel Valley, but in Israel, <laughs> I hear my friend told me one of his neighbors has a sign that says, you could take one, but don't take them all, right? And it's like, um, Deuteronomy 23 actually allows people the provision who are tra- those who are travelers to take grain to pluck and to pick. What's not allowed is to take the sickle and start harvesting someone's someone's field. That's not okay. So to take what you need to take what you, uh, to satisfy you is completely permissible. This is the heart of God. This is consistent with how God treats us. But what's prohibited, according to Exodus twenty, as Auntie Etz read, was working, laboring. To satisfy yourself, to refresh yourself is totally cool. What was not okay is to work for gain, work for work's sake, to gain. That was not prohibit, uh, that was not permissible. So this, this was okay, but the fear, Pharisees took the Sabbath rules to a whole nother level. So they considered this work. It's called legalism, guys. The Pharisees were legalists. They gained a lot of pride and, and, and spiritual stature by how well they kept these rules that they made up. Here's a modern day example of legalism. It still exists, by the way. This is not a 2,000 year old problem. It still exists. The Shabbat elevator, that's, in other words, the Sabbath elevator. If you go to Israel and go to the uh, hotels, God willing, we'll take a trip as an evergreen church family to Israel one of these days. And, and these elevators, they'll have a Shabbat elevator. What's a Shabbat elevator? A Shabbat elevator is an elevator that opens up by itself and stops by every single floor so that you don't have to work to push a button. That was considered work. The rest of us, we go like, I'm pushing the button because I don't want to stop by every single floor. That's a Shabbat elevator. But I came across this interesting article in NBC News, Rabbi Yosef Eliashiv changed things up, said that, you know what, that's considered work now. To use mechanical things like that is considered work. So this poor couple, Yosef Ball, an Orthodox Jew who lives in the United States, I believe, he has five young children, and he lives in a sky rise on the seventh floor. So to honor and maintain the Sabbath, instead of taking a Shabbat elevator or an elevator in itself, he would lug his five kids in the stroller and work his way up to seven flights of uh, stairs to get home. 
Isn't that crazy? I mean, I don't know if that's relaxing or that's making it worse. It's clearly making it worse. These are the type of things that are taking place. I'll give you a couple more. Elisha even proclaimed that Jews could not wear Crocs. You, you know those rubber shoes? Crocs? You put those things in there sometimes. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you cannot wear Crocs on Yom Kippur because it's too comfortable for the somber holiday fasting. You need some more uncomfortable shoes. Well, that's another thing that he did. This one's kind of funny, so hopefully, but it's helpful. It makes a point. This nose picking was talked about too amongst the rabbis. Nose picking. It was under debate because as you would uh, excavate your nose, <laughs> you might pluck out some hairs, and that was considered cutting hair, which is not allowed on the Sabbath. But they said it was okay, though. They, they said that one was okay. They, they finally debated that was okay. How about religious families can, can use timers for their lights or special hot plates to warm food as long as those hot plates were sw- not switched on during the Sabbath. You, you got to switch it on before uh, Friday night sunset. Then you can use it. Just keep it on. And, and then that's not considered work. I mean, this is legalism, church, is it not? At the highest order. This is legalism at, in the highest order. And in essence, it's producing spiritual pride in people. Look what I'm able to do. Look what I, how faithful I am. This is what we're talking about here. And Jesus' response is masterful at verse 25 and 26. He basically answers the Pharisees who are accusing him with a question. Have you never read... That must have been a jolt to them. Of course they've read the Old Testament. Have you never read how David took the showbread or the consecrated bread and ate it out of 1 Samuel 21? Have you never read? Of course they've read this. In essence, he's saying, have you never read and understood how David, who was not supposed to take the consecrated bread or the showbread, that was only meant for the priest to eat, why was he able to eat it and not be corrected? Jesus' point is this. It's the law of mercy and compassion and necessity. You do what you got to do in an emergency situation. Jesus said, of course he could eat instead of having his men faint and die on him. And in verse 28, Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus himself, sees, sees that the Sabbath has been buried under a mountain of pharisaical traditions like Mount Everest piled upon the Sabbath. And Jesus, basically, the author of the Sabbath, is reclaiming what the Sabbath is all about. The heart of the Sabbath is for refreshment. Exodus twenty three twelve says this, Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor. That's work, not picking grain. Work, hard manual labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. Rest. And the sons of your female slaves as well as your strangers may refresh themselves. Rest and refreshment is what the Sabbath was about. In verse 27, he says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is what we're talking about here. It's about refreshment. As I think about this, these hot days, I mean, it's perhaps like 100 degrees outside now. I just started sweating just walking from the NPR. And I remember as a boy working with my dad in August near Sierra Madre by the foothills, and it was hot. Not Maybe not quite this hot, but it was hot. 
I remember unloading and loading the lawnmower, raking and picking up things, getting in the truck, getting out of the truck, constantly moving, thinking, how am I going to get through today? And the days in the summertime were much longer. This is in the wintertime where you're hoping that the sun will go down. So as a gardener, you work till the sun went down. But there was, one, there was one thing that we looked forward to besides lunch is what my mom would pack in our igloo, in our ice chest, and put in cold water for us. And in between houses, we would take that drink, and it was like, oh, it refreshed us. It kept us going to the next house. We understand this. As I think about our church family, even my own life, what's, what this past week was like, what happened this past week for you as you're sitting here? What type of heat did you deal with? As I think about this, did you deal with the heat of work politics, office dynamics? Did you deal with the heat with unbelieving classmates as you go back to school? Are you, have you been dealing with the heat of, of a difficult marriage? Have you been dealing with the heat of discouraging news as you're constantly watching the internet or television, CNN? It can't be good for you to listen to that all week, right? Have you been dealing with the heat of being misunderstood for holding to Christian values? Easily could have been happening. Whatever the heat is, that heat makes you thirsty. And I kind of want to talk about the command that Jesus says, in he, or the writer talks about Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, commands Christians to gather together regularly on the Lord's Day. This is a command that God has for us. And keep in mind the heart of the Sabbath now. Is this a command to just kind of burden us with legalistic uh, uh, demands? Like, you need to show up at church. Perhaps right now you're feeling, man, uh, this is wearing me out. Why do I got to be here? I'm just coming here just for my wife. I'm just coming here just to make my parents happy. I'm just coming here because I have to, so God is happy with me. And if that's your attitude, of course it's going to wear you out. Of course it's going to wear you out. You got to be like, what in the world? I'd rather be sitting by the couch. Well, the intent of Hebrews 10, 24, 25 is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another as the day draws near for the return of Christ. The reason why we gather is to stimulate and to encourage one another. The Lord's day is supposed to be refreshing. The Lord's day is why we minister Jesus Christ. This is why we want to be explicit about Jesus Christ, our Sabbath on the Lord's day. We're not necessarily trying to add more demands on you. We're just trying to look to Christ. He is the one that refreshes us. This is where we get to be no longer with office workers who don't think like us. We get to be around like-minded brothers and sisters. That's refreshing to me, to be around people that think the same things and love the same God. This is where we focus on preaching and teaching to know more about Jesus Christ. This is where we get to encourage each other. This is why we make it a point to get up and greet each other so we can encourage each other, check in on each other a little bit, maybe even grab lunch afterwards to pray for one another. See, the Lord's day is designed by God to prepare us to face, of tomorrow, to face tomorrow's heat. It's coming. Matter of fact, maybe right when you get in the car, the heat is on. Somebody laughed there. I understand, I understand. I, I, I've been there before too. 
See, the Lord calls us to gather together so we're refreshed, so we could take on the day. We could take on the world tomorrow. That's what it's about. And whenever we rest in Jesus as our Sabbath, we receive refreshment. Let's turn to the next senior. What does it mean to rest in Jesus? Question mark. Well, we find in scene two here in the synagogue, restoration in the synagogue. Restoration in the synagogue. Verse one and two, the Pharisees are there. They spring a trap for Jesus. They're there waiting. It says they're watching him so they can accuse him. They're watching. They're in the front rows watching Jesus, and they have a bait implanted there. It's the man with a withered hand. What does the withered hand mean? It was either deformed or damaged through birth or some kind of injury. And Luke says it was his right hand. So that means it was his dominant hand. He wasn't able to work. And there's a man who's been struggling over a withered hand. They know how Jesus is going to respond. And they're watching him. And they go and they ask this question to themselves. I wonder if we're going to catch him now. We've got plenty of witnesses. It's no longer just us and him. Now we've got everyone else so we could take care of Jesus. See, the, their rules actually allowed, the Pharisees' rules allowed for people to save each other's lives. So, so if it was a life-threatening situation, you could save them. You could help them. But what's not allowed is some kind of a medical thing. This is a hand. This is not life and death. So they're watching. Is he going to break the rules? R.C. Sproul says, if you had a dislocated shoulder, which is a very painful thing, if you had a dislocated shoulder, you would have to wait till the sun goes down to get that shoulder back in. Otherwise, that's work. Right? That's crazy, right? Yet this is the type of rules that they're working on there. And Jesus was saying, I'm not going to play by those rules. Jesus is compassionate and he responds. But he knows their intent. He knows their intent. Luke 6 says he knows their intent. He responds with yet another question. And how does he respond? He responds with a couple of questions with obvious answers. Is it okay to do good or harm on the Sabbath? To save or to kill on the Sabbath? I mean, common sense will give you the answers for this. You don't have to be a religious expert to know that. Of course it's good to do good. Of course it's good to save people. Look what verse 4 Four at the end says this. This is the indicting thing. But they kept silent. It's one of those situations that when, when you win an argument without even saying much, and they, they can't say anything right there. And the problem here is not necessarily that they, they were corrected now. This is the scary part. Examine our own lives on this one. Is when we're corrected, yet without repentance. Conviction without repentance is worse. But you know what happens, church, if you keep doing that? The same sun that melts the clay hardens the clay. In essence, you get harder and harder and harder the more you keep ignoring the, the Holy Spirit's conviction upon your life. The more you actually avoid obeying the Holy Spirit's conviction on what's right or wrong in your life, you actually harden your heart so that you sear your conscience before God. And this is where the Pharisees were at. They just kept silent. And verse 5, this is how Jesus responds. And after looking around at them with anger, there's nothing calm about this now. This, Jesus is angry. This is, he's looking at them with fire in his eyes but is balanced off with grief. He'll sadden. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. 
Jesus gets angry oftentimes when other people are getting abused or mistreated. That's how Jesus operates. He's always thinking about other people. He saw their indifference to divine grace. He saw an opportunity for, they missed the opportunity for this man to have his life changed. They lacked compassion and mercy. Jesus is angry. But guess what? Just like old wineskin, these Pharisees had old wineskin. They're hard and stiff. They could not understand. They could not, like I said earlier, their constant refusal of submitting to correction gave them a hardened heart. They, 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 they're, all they're thinking about is this agenda to trap Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Verse 5, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was, was restored. Just like the disciples who were with Jesus, they experienced refreshment. Whenever you're with Jesus, you experience restoration. This man encountered Jesus. He was with Jesus, and he experienced restoration. The creator of the universe recreates his hand. This is a creative miracle. You don't just get a new hand all of a sudden. He created a new hand before their eyes. And he restores his hand back to its original design. Only the creator could do that. Only the creator could do that. He's the one who designed hands, and he knows what the hand is supposed to look like. He's the one who has authority to say, have a new hand. And he, this man got a new hand. We're dealing with God right here. We're dealing with God right here. Here's an application. I know we're all broken people, including myself. I mean, we're dealing with sin and temptation constantly. Even if you're reborn again Christian, we're dealing with sin and temptation. We've been hurt by sin, and we've been hurt by others. Perhaps we've been hurt with people from within the church. We've suffered through broken relationships. I mean, even recently, I, I know family members who haven't spoken to each other in years and years and years. They, they don't want to see each other. Who knows what happened, right? Are you in that type of situation where you haven't talked to a brother or sister for years now? Well, this, uh, this other situation I'm thinking about, Jesus changed their heart and they wanted to see him. They, they forgave and restoration, reconciliation took place. When you're riding with Jesus that closely, when you're walking with Jesus that closely, when Jesus is your guide that you're thinking about constantly, your God that you're thinking about constantly, you're constantly submitting to him, he restores things in your life. He may not hear your hand like this, but he'll restore heart issues. We're all broken people. We're all dealing with setbacks, disappointments, medical issues, emotional pain. But we're also surrounded with broken people as well. And when broken people come to you, where do you take them? This is an exhortation now. When people are coming to you who are hurting, where do you take them? Let's think about what happened with Jesus right now. Jesus knew that this was a trap. Jesus knew that these Pharisees wanted to kill him. Jesus knew that if he would heal this and restore this man, he would be in trouble according to the Pharisees. Of course, he's God. And he knew everything was happening according to his plan. But just like the Pharisees, we are all surrounded with people who want to watch us and indict us for talking about Christ. Think about this now, whether it's family members or even at the office or other places. It's no longer popular to proclaim Jesus as the one and true physician of the soul. We understand this. Do we direct people to principles? 
to methods, to traditions, or to this program, or to that program? Or do we tell them about Jesus Christ for the restoration of their souls? See, resting in Jesus as your Sabbath restores us. And the more we experience that restoration, the more you have the conviction to tell people about Christ because you know he's real. Because you know he alone can restore your heart and your soul. Even broken relationships, that's been going on for decades. Let's finish up here with a final scene here. What does it mean to rest in Jesus? Well, we find in scene three, redemption in the conspiracy. Redemption in the conspiracy. Verse six, this is an actual different scene here. They left the synagogue, the Pharisees went out, and immediately on the Sabbath, right, immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. This is the price of redemption Jesus pays. Jesus knew he pushed a button for his death sentence right there. He signed his death contract by healing this man. He knew that an army of evildoers would come against him by healing this man. Jesus says he does it. And the, and the Pharisees hated Jesus so much that they would partner up with their own common enemies, the Herodians. The Herodians, in essence, were traitors. They were similar to the tax collectors. They were Jews who, worked for the, who supported the Roman Empire. I mean, think about that. The Pharisees teaming up with the Herodians. I don't know what that's like today, you know. <laughs> I don't know what political parties need to come together to team up with enemies, you know, and as enemies. And they hated Jesus. They hated Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, is that they're filled with rage. Now, it's interesting how Jesus' anger moves him to heal somebody and restore somebody, Right? And then when the Pharisees were angered, what do they do? They plotted murder. This is the ultimate blindness. Jesus says, is it lawful to save a life or kill a life on the Sabbath? I mean, he knew what they're thinking. He nails them. This is ultimate darkness. He calls it out before they even do it, and they still go and do it. Do you know anybody like that? You warn them, you warn them, you tell them, and they still go ahead and walk off the spiritual cliff. These Pharisees were so blind that they, they planned to kill the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath. This is what happened. And they would succeed. Perhaps only 10 months later, Jesus would be hanging on the cross. They actually succeeded. And the greatest act of evil would lead to the greatest good for all of us. You see, Jesus, whenever we rest in Jesus as our Sabbath, he offers us redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. This is the biggest issue that any of us have to deal with. The friend that I went to talk to looked at me. He was tired. His eyes were barely open, but he kind of perked up. I felt encouraged because I don't know if in those situations, did they want me around or not? But I was there, and he looked at me. He extended his hand. I shook his hand, and he said this to me. Talk to me. I know. I've been in those situations. Though. I know exactly what he needs to hear. I know exactly what he wants to talk about. We talked. We shared a few memories, but then we got right into it. I says, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Do you believe this? Do you believe? Have you believed on him and repented of your sins and believed on him as your Lord and your Savior? Goes, yes. Do you believe, I understand his background, do you believe that keeping the Sabbath or nor even observing some dietary laws have nothing to do with your salvation? 
actually a corruption of salvation. Do you believe this? That those things have nothing to do with your salvation? He nodded yes. In other words, I'm telling him, do you believe that Jesus did it all and you have nothing? We have nothing to do with our salvation. He said yes. I was trying to explain to him, in essence, it's not about keeping the law of Sabbath. It's about knowing the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what saves you and What a privilege to be in that situation. Because upon that cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins. Upon that cross, Jesus is able to set sinners like you and me free. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But those who are being saved is the power of God. Do you believe this as you're sitting there? Do you, does this bore you? Does this excite you? That I'm saying that the word of the cross is what saves you. This message needs to be burned into our minds, into our hearts, for us to understand this. Do you want to be saved? And perhaps you're sitting here thinking, I've never trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Well, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. Do you want rest for your souls? All of us will be in that situation someday, sooner or later. All of us will be in that situation. Hopefully we have a privileged opportunity to finish off life the way we want to. It may happen suddenly. All of us will be in that situation, young or old. And that is the most fundamental issue that we need to understand. Have you received redemption for the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know this as a fact? When you go to bed at night, you have assurance that if I don't wake up, I'm going to wake up in the arms of Jesus Christ. Do you have that? Do you have that? 